All right. I want to talk to you. I don't know what I want to talk to you about. I have literally, for the first time in my life, made two sets of notes and copied both sets of notes to my notes. And now I have two sermons. The one, the one is, is, is change me, and the other one talks about power. And I'm still trying to figure out, and I'm thinking maybe I should go for a third option. So if you'll allow me, I'm just going to start and see where God leads this. Because here's my consideration. Here, here is my thinking, and this is where I'm stuck at. We're, we're, we're in a very, very, very difficult place as a church. A very difficult place. We, when we left the old building, we were on top of our game. That building was amazing. I don't know if uh, you were there, some of you. Who's new only after we moved in? Who came to our church now after we moved in? Only a couple. Wow, that's nice. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You should have seen us in our teens. Uh, we were, because the building was smaller, we thought that we were on top of the world, we're doing everything well. You kids was flooded with people, they had toys and it was nice. We moved into this building and we, we can't catch our feet yet. It's just, we, we brought all the toys from that old building and we put it in a corner here in this building. <laughs> we have nothing. And we're trying to, there's so much to do and so, so many things to, to move towards. We're in this difficult situation where m many of our, our um, members has been with our church for so many years, is slowly but surely getting older. Our core focus, as I have to repeat this often, is young people. That is our core focus. Now, I am not young, and you don't have to be young to be in this church, but you have to know that we are moving back to, to service. Service. It's like a car. You have to service the young people. We have to serve the young people by making sure that they get the gospel. That's what we're going to continue to do. So my consideration, even in preaching, uh, this is why I made two sets of notes, because the one sermon deals with issues that I don't think you understand you have yet. So it's difficult in choosing the direction because you, you have to serve. I, I can't talk about things that's irrelevant if the call of the church is still the young people. So it doesn't help me talking about marriages every, because how, how many of you are not married? Oh, snap. That would be a wrong sermon to preach. So if your spouse says this, you say to your spouse this, missed everybody. So we have to get back to what is relevant to what we want to try and achieve and what we are supposed to do. And still while doing that, not miss all of you that's over 26. Uh, yeah, all right. Here is my story. We'll go to chapter Mark 5. Mark chapter 5. Let's see if that works. This is my third message then. I'm opting to go with Mark 5. Not just power and it's not just change me. It is somewhere in the middle. Mark chapter number 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him... Out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling amongst the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains. They were, they were trying. This, there is a man, Jesus comes to the, the country of the Gadarenes. He gets out of the boat. 
and immediately, and immediately upon getting out of the boat, there comes to a man with an unclean spirit. I've come to now in, in this time of my life and realized that the power and the influence of, of the devil in our lives are very hidden, but very pronounced. So many people are so oblivious to the power of the demonic operating around them. And I've very, very seldom take a service like this and talk about demons. And I'm not going to do it today either. Because when we pray for, other, for people and at altar and somebody shouts and screams and, and we're worshiping and we're praying and we're praising God and a demon manifests and a demon begins to, to make a noise, you would normally see me quiet it down first. Because what the demon wants to do is take all the attention and put it on itself. And the attention should always be on Jesus. We are, not, we are not oblivious to the plans and the devices of the enemy, but we are very aware that God has already won the battle for us. We are not on the defense side. We are supposed to be on the offense side, pushing, taking ground. We are to take possession. We are not to keep possession. We are, we are advancing. We are, we are running from ownership and taking back what God has given to us. And so we have this guy in this garden and he is demon possessed. Jesus immediately comes there to him and it says here, he stays in the tombs. He stays where dead people are buried. He doesn't stay in the city. He is pushed out of the city because of his condition. There is something wrong with this man and his people has rejected him. He is staying in the tombs. Jesus walks uh, the city and he sees this man, uh, walks to this region of the Gadarenes and this man immediately approaches him and it gives us the backstory. He says, he had come out of the boat. Immediately they met him a man out of, who's out of the tombs, a man with unclean spirit who had his dwelling amongst the tombs. He's made his living amongst the dead. And no one could bind him, not even with change. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the change had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. There's something wrong with this man. And the city's answer to this man's problem is handle the symptom. This man has an unclean spirit. He is demonic now as a, as a natural manifestation. This is his everyday life. When he is in the city, he is visible and an irritation and a bother. So what we do with him is we don't know how to get the demon out of him. So we don't, the demon, where does the demon manifest? And the, is, it, is it the body? Is it the soul? Or is it the spirit? Is it, is, it, is it a physical problem in his flesh or is it a soul problem? Demon possessed. Demons are spirits, right? right? It's fallen down spirits. A body, you have a body. You are a spirit that has a soul that stays in a body. Now, if a demon is a spirit, where does the, where does the spirit go? He wants to go in the body to control the body, but it's not the body. It may be as a result of what the body did that opened the door for the demon to have access to the body, but the demon is inside the body. So how they deal with what is in the body is they try and handle the body, 
not the demon that's in the body. They're dealing with the demon that's in the body. So that what they do is they take this man and they chain him so that he can't move. They're not fixing the problem. They're not fixing the problem. They're merely dealing with the symptoms. And this man's body is tied down while it's not his body that's the problem. It's the demon that's inside of him that is the problem. And they're trying, tr trying to tame him. It says here, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself, himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then they asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is a legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine. So, so Jesus is looking at this man, and Jesus is the first person to appear in this man's life that's not trying to bind him with chains. We often want to put boundaries under, around what we can't handle and can't fix. Okay. The way you're, I don't know how many of you, how many of you watch porno? <laughs> Almost put my hand up. I don't know when this guy's serious or not. You're not going to beat porno. And I want to tell you how especially not you're going to beat it. You won't beat it by not having a computer. You won't beat it by always being around someone. You won't beat it by putting content blockers on your phone. You're dealing with a symptom. You're trying to fight the problem by putting limitations on the symptoms. You're not going to deal with it. You, you're not going to solve your financial problems by cutting up your credit card. Because they put it on your phone now and you can't cut the iPhone into two. It's now, it's now double click scan pay. You can't deal with the symptoms if you don't get to the root cause. Jesus is the first guy that walks and bumps into this man and begins to deal with what is causing the problem. I wonder how many of us don't ever come to the root source of our issue. Okay, Jesus walks past the fig tree. We're coming. Jesus, young people, you have to listen to, uh, this is relevant to you. Jesus comes to the fig tree and says to him, where's your fruit? He doesn't ask the fruit, there's, there's no fruit. He looks at the, the fig tree, can't speak. But Jesus is expecting fruit from it. What does Jesus curse? Jesus curses the root. He doesn't cut the branch off. He curses the root. Because it's the root's fault that there's no fruit. He, he cuts the problem. The symptom of the tree is no fruit. He gets to the root of the problem. From your root up. It died from the root up. He cut it from the root. He, he says, if you don't bear fruit, the axe is already at the root. And I will ask my father to give you another here. If you don't, then we'll cut you out. God goes to the root. We often deal with the symptoms. When you have a headache, we drink a disprint because the, the disprint makes the headache go away. But I don't know if it fixes the symptom. If it's bad food or too much sugar that's causing it, the disprint fixes the symptom, but it doesn't fix the headache. The origin of it. 
How many of us are merely dealing with the symptoms? Some of the ways we deal with a symptom is buying new clothing. We don't feel, we don't feel good about ourselves unless we put on new clothes. The issue is not the new clothes that makes you feel good. It's a self-image problem. And if you only feel good with new clothes, it's you covering the symptoms with new clothing so that you don't get that exposed. If you put on a picture and a thousand people likes it, and next week only 200 people like it, the problem, and, the, and it affects your mood. You have a problem that you don't know how to fix. And you think the fix is a better picture. I wonder how many, how many problems in our lives are symptoms that we don't know what the origin of the symptom is. Because the origin, I said it this morning, feels so natural that we assume we're right. Isn't that right? Everybody walks different. If you pay attention to the way people, you know in Hollywood, there is actually a thing about how actors run. Who knows how Tom Cruise runs? You're not faster this way. I don't know that you're going faster. This is not aerodynamic. You push the wind back, you go back, you push the wind. That's not it. He runs like this. Other people, because they're, everybody runs different. But you run according to what is comfortable to you. So we, when, you, when you buy shoes, we don't say, okay, you're running wrong, change the way you run. We'd rather get shoes to fit the way you run because that's comfortable to you. So in most of life, we try and adjust the world around us to fit what is comfortable to you. And we don't want to be uncomfortable for a while so that we can get to what, what is right. Does that make sense? So we have a guy and the city's answer to this demon-possessed guy is, let's bind him. Let's bind him with chains. I want to I ask, is, is, is you're already bound when you're demon-possessed. And some people's answer is binding you even more. What if your depression is not clinical depression? I'm not denying the fact that we have something called common grace. When I go to a doctor, I don't care if he's uh, a yoga instructor or uh, there's some, some limitations. I think if he's a Satanist, I don't want to go to him. If he asks me, what do you do for a living? And I go like, I'm a pastor. And I go, what do you do? And he goes like, part-time Satanist and then doctor. I'm going to go like, okay, I'm out. I feel better. Can't believe it. I'm healed. <laughs> Walk out with a broken leg. But the guy doesn't have to be saved for his advice to be right. I mean, if, if I have a, if I have a, a, often I go to the doctor, Chanel mocks me of this. I come back with, what is it called? Augmentum. You know Augmentum. No, you don't have children yet. But Augmentum antibiotics is, is you can give that to kids. So when I come back and Chanel says, what the doctor said, I say, they gave me Augmentum. She just smiles. You weren't sick. I can give that to kids. Uh, <laughs> But if the doctor who is not saved gives you advice, it doesn't make the advice wrong. So I understand that there, are, there is depression, that is clinical depression, and you need help with that, and you need treatments for that. I understand that. So I'm not denying mental health issues. But I'm saying very many of the mental health issues is already a binding in your life. And when you put yourself at the feet of people that don't know better, their advice might be binding you even more. How many of us are running into issues that we are trying to solve with a way that God doesn't say is the right way. 
Does it make any sense? Am I saying anything? All right, here's the story. God takes the Egyptians, uh, the, the Israelites. He sends Joshua into Israel. Uh, uh, he sends Joseph into Egypt. Yo. He goes back and gets Jacob, who becomes Israel, and his 11 other children. They're the 12 tribes of Egypt. They stay, uh, Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. They stay in Egypt. That's when you have a vacation home. You don't know where you stay. They stayed in Is Egypt. Yo. And staying in Egypt, staying in Egypt, the, the Pharaoh forgets the arrangement of the previous Pharaoh with Joseph. And he begins, you can read the, the book Exodus. It's just a fancy word for exit. That's how you remember it. My mind was blown when the pastor said that. I was like, now I know where what is. If you want to talk about how they exited Egypt, Exodus. And so when you preach and you, you can easily go to the scriptures because you know some of these words. If you want to know what Mark says, Mark. And for the three new people, Mark is a book in the Bible. The second book of the New Testament. You'll have clever, clever facts like these taught to you on a Sunday. Now, these are the names of the children. It goes through the names. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel, uh, verse 11 from Exodus 1. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built Pharaoh's supply cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives and they, uh, uh, midwives of whom the name of one was Sapphira and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when your duties of midwives of the Hebrew women see that them on the birth stools, if a son is born to them, you shall kill him. So here, Joseph enjoyed a season of prosperity and they begin to grow, uh, to grow as a, as a people. But after a while, this people in number became a threat to their slave masters, to their taskmasters, to the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't pay attention when there were a small number of people. The Egyptians began to, be, to pay attention to a people when they grew in numbers. A small church is not a threat. Because a small church you can manage. But when a church becomes large, it becomes a problem. The problem is when a pastor thinks it's him that becomes large. The pastor shouldn't be the one that's large. The church should be large. And, and people are fighting, which I'm telling you is the spirit of the Antichrist wanting the church to be small. Anytime you make the statement, I like a small church, you have to ask yourself why. What is more important, what you like or what Jesus wants? What do you think Jesus wants? A small church or a growing church? We should be all just be honest with one another. What do you think Jesus wants? Does Jesus want the church in South Africa to be small or large? Some people want to say he doesn't want a church. He just wants saved people. That's, there's no doctrine for that. 
And so when it becomes large, they become to pay attention. And he says, this is how we deal with this problem is we kill the children. So he's looking at it, saying, this is the symptom I don't like. Kill the children. We'll deal with the issue of them outnumbering us and growing. And so they put pressure on them. And these children, uh, these is, uh, Israelites, begin to build their city. So the Israelites are working with hard labor to build the Egyptians' dreams. Watch. The mindset is being formed in the Israelites that this is what I do for a daily life. I wake up in the morning, I make clay bricks, and we build the cities for our taskmasters. If we don't build it fast enough, they beat us. If we build it well, they'll give us our daily rations. This is what we expect them to give. And they are being conditioned into a life cycle of waking up, being punished, and being rewarded. This is the mindset that is being developed in the Israelites under the hand of Pharaoh. Is that okay? All right, let's see. Now, in Exodus chapter number 14, I want to go there, I want to read this to you. They are being led out of Egypt by Moses. Moses now becomes their leader and God wants to take them to a promised land. You know the story. God says to the Israelites under Pharaoh's hand that I will lead you to the promised land. Why do you think it takes 40 years for them to get to the promised land? What is happening in our country is, let's not go there. Let's not go there. How better to explain this? When you give a child a sports car, do you think they have the capacity to drive it? To drive it at its potential? They don't. Does it mean the child will never be able to get to that potential? But if you take a person with the wrong mindset and put him in the wrong place, the wrong mindset will, will crash a thing that might be right at the right time, but is wrong because the mindset can't handle it. So for how many years these people live under oppression? Midwives begin to get, kill babies. So you hear of your neighbor's child dying under birth. Another one dies under birth. Another one dies under birth. What do you think happens to you when you just are surrounded by oppression and people dying? Children born, dead. Moses' mom has this baby and she wants to save her child. The way she saves this child is not by caring for it and raising it in her arms in the safety of a house. The way she cares for it is putting it in a basket and putting it in a river that can float down a river. That's how she saves a baby. It's a, it's a wild mindset. And here this child is growing up in a world that is distinctly different from the people that he is going to lead out. And these people has a mindset of being slaves. And Moses comes to them and says, I want to lead you out. And they question him, who do you think you are? He says to God, if I come to the people and I tell them, I'm going to lead you, God sent me to lead you out. He says to God, what do I tell them who sent me? What if they don't believe me? Because the answer is they won't believe him. Their mindset is so attached to their natural experience of life. This is what they grew up in. That anything that even though it's God. Is contrary to what they think is real. God can't do that. So they question every move of God. 
Are we talking? Can I talk with you? All right. So God says, lead them out. And he says, what do I tell them? You say, God sent me. What's in your hand? He says, they won't believe me. I, I can't even speak. Aaron will speak to you. Throw your stuff. He picks up the stuff. Miracles. He, they begin to do miracles. So the Israelites, uh, Israelites begin to believe Moses and they are being led out. They are a few moments away from Egypt. They get to the Red Sea and their mindset manifests in the first problem they face. God wants to give them a promised land in, in scriptures in the Old Testament between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he explains that the land I'm taking you to, he makes this statement, I don't know where in Leviticus he says that, but he, he says in Egypt, if you wanted to plant a vegetable garden, you had to water it with buckets. I'm taking you to a land where you won't water it with buckets. God will send rain from heaven to water your field so large it would be. I'm taking you to that land. But on the journey there, God is working on their mindset because they can't, God doesn't want to fix it with a miracle, fix their mindset just with a miracle, and boom, you have a slave mentality and a promise. Does that make sense? Their natural experience of life is to make bricks for Pharaoh. God says, I want you to make bricks for yourself. I want you to build houses for yourself. But if they don't have a Pharaoh over them, they might not work. They might not know how to run the thing. And so God is leading them out. They get a few moments after Egypt, they get to the Red Sea. And now they're standing at the Red Sea and they see their first problem and they see the Egyptians behind them and they're looking over the horizon towards their problem, but they can't get there because the moment now is a problem to their mind, not their flesh. The reason some of you can't step into what God has for you is not because your flesh can't deal with it. It's because your mind can't deal with it. Your mind cannot see what God can do for you. We want to manage our natural lives by not adjusting our mind, but by adjusting the things around us. They would much rather not have the Red Sea than have their mind shifted. I want to explain this. It would be better for the Israelites to have never had the Red Sea and the Egyptians chase them. They would much rather God have that not happen than have the lesson that God can supply. Which one do you think is better? The one who had to go through the Red Sea or the one that missed it? Which one do you think will give better advice about life? The one who went through something or the one who skipped everything? Why is God taking you through certain things? He doesn't want to deal with the symptom. He wants to deal with the way that you think. The Bible says to us, he says, be renewed by the renewing of your mind that you may approve what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. Be renewed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind has to change. It's not your flesh that has to change. It's your mind that has to change because your flesh responds to what your mind says. Your flesh is, the, is not the problem. Your mind is the problem. The devil is not after your flesh. Your flesh is the victim of a bad mindset. People are not overweight always because their flesh. There are, I understand, because I have to qualify everything I say. There are people that are obese because there is problems in their body. I get that. Most people are not obese because there's a problem in their body. There's a problem in their mind. 
their mind has a craving that their body cannot, their body is speaking to their mind, I want this donut. And the mind is too weak to say to the donut no, because they can't say that if I say yes to this donut, I'm saying no to something else. Yes to the donut is a no to something else. A young person goes out. If you're not smart enough, you'll say yes to a beer now, but you don't know that the yes to the beer now is possibly saying no to something else in the future. Because that beer becomes a chain around you and forms an addiction that you don't know is a limitation in your tomorrow. And that because if you're so connected to that, you can't study for the exams that you need to study or whatever you're saying no to. You never just say yes and it's fine. Whatever a yes is here is a no there. Everything is attached. And we don't understand that a no here is enabling a yes over there somewhere. Does that make sense? And so in Exodus, <clears throat> Exodus 14, verses 10, it says, And Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, lifted their eyes, and behold, so the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us? Their mindset is affecting where they're going. At the first sign of a threat, their mindset is in the way. What in your life are you allowing to be formed in you that says no? A young person can much more easily believe God because they don't have experiences with so many failures yet. If I speak to the little bit older audience, you came out of matric and now you're starting to look for a job and every, year, every job you apply to is a no or the salary is not enough. And you don't understand how to deal with that because you have a dream that God is going to do something in your life, but it seems like God's dream for you and what you're going through now every day is not the same thing. And you're looking at God and saying, why is this happening? The answer from God is because I'm working on your mindset. I have to get the slave out of you. I have to get you to realize you're not a slave. You don't have taskmasters anymore. You don't have to have someone tell you what to do next. You have to govern yourself. You don't have a need to be governed. You don't, he says to Lot's wife, leaving, leading her out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says to her, the angel says to her, listen to me, don't look back. Don't look back. Because if you look back, you'll turn into a salt You'll turn into salt. Don't look back. And while they're being led out of a crazy place, a community that is filled with nuts people, sin and chaos is there. There's some part of Lot's wife that goes like, I'm going to miss that. Mm. The Egyptians are, the Israelites are being led out of Egypt. God is saying, I'm say, taking you to a, lani, a, 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 a land overflowing with milk and a lani. Milk and honey, Lani, Melani. I'm taking you to a place overflowing with milk and honey. And they get there and th isn't there enough graves? We'll die there. How many people are content with where they're at now? Are you happy with the results? Are you happy with where you're at? People say, nope, the Bible teaches me to be content. Content? doesn't mean, content means while I'm, content would mean in the story that while I'm here and I see a Red Sea there and I see the Egyptians there, I'm content that this is where God wants me to be. 
What people say, I'm content that this is where I'm at, but this is not where I'm going to stay. I want to get out of this situation. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want the, the, the meat pots of Egypt. I don't want the graves in Egypt. I want what God has, although there's a problem. God is trying to get your way of thinking out of you. And God can't change that until you realize that the way you think about life is wrong. And I want to submit to you, even though you're 16 or 17 years old, the way you are thinking about life is probably wrong. You're like, I haven't even started yet. Yes. The sooner you take a new framework for thinking, which is the Word of God, this is how you think. It's not how you are taught to think. This is how you ought to think. In Numbers 11, uh, verses 4 to 6, it says, the, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish and ate at Egypt at no cost. All the, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. They're in the wilderness. God is letting it rain manna. And all they can think about is the meat pots in Egypt. At least we didn't have to pay for it. God wants to give you your own country, your own house, your own farmland. He wants to give you freedom for your children. He wants to make you a powerful nation. He says, all the nations in the world will come and visit you and ask you, how was it done? And you go like, oh, that's hunger for flight. And God is busy teaching you that you, you sell yourself short. Because what you have is it having you settle for less because you don't think more is possible. And this step where God begins to let manna rain down from heaven and you suffer from manna for 40 years. They only have manna for 40 years. What do you think it teaches you? It teaches you how to control your flesh. And some of you go, God, when is my financial breakthrough coming? Maybe God is allowing you to learn how to deal with what you have through what you have without giving you abundance. Because if you don't have that mindset in your lack, You'll have that mindset in your abundance. I can't take you to abundance with that mindset. I have to change the mindset first. That when you get to abundance, you're already trained in the flesh how to deal with that. God is not trying to deal with the symptoms. He's trying to deal with your mind. If you have a pastor that pastors a church like this, I'm grateful for the way I grew up. God was training me how to deal with things. I was telling the story last night to my friend. I'll close with the story. I'm taking too long. I told them last night how I did my first business deal and how I, I said yes on an auction to buy a house without having the money for the finances uh, to pay for the, the deposit. I couldn't pay for the deposit. And I went, and my dad said, yes, put up your hand. And I said, no, I, I, he said, put it, that's still a good price. Put it up. I put up my hand. They gave me the bid. It fell, the hammer fell to me. And I, now I said, okay, dad, borrow me 25,000 rand to pay for this. I said, why did you bring me to an auction if you don't have money? I don't have it. And that was the first day I had to figure out how to get 25,000 rand very, 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 very quickly. You don't have time to apply for a credit card if you have to pay the same day. And this is where God began to teach me how to deal with certain things. I'm grateful for that event because now at a larger scale, we had to raise 100 million rand and however that works. But because I went through that and it's taken me uh, 25 years to get to this point after salvation, 25 years. Now when we have this and we have the offering and the tithes coming I'm not confused because there was training before that. But if I got here while 18 years old, I would have thought it would be about the money. 
There are certain things that God has to get out of your life and he can only get it out by putting you in a place where you have no choice but to either change your mind or stay there. Did you hear what I said? Some of your things will not change until you change your mind. God's not going to change it because if he changes that, your mind will stay the same and you'll move to the next level. And you with that mind and the next level will crash what God wants to do. I, I'm taking this from another preacher, T.D. Jakes. A baby takes nine months to arrive, to be dropped off. Nine months. It, it takes, it, it, it's, it's one act that puts the baby there. But then, well, I'm not going to expand on that. That's, none of you are married. You shouldn't know what I'm talking about. Where does babies come from, Rico? Vietnam. But the moment you become full pregnant, I'm, I'm stealing, I'm just totally plagiarizing this guy's story. For her to have a baby, my wife to have a baby, which she will not have again. <laughs> no, it's, it's for bay forms. Thank you for your The pain starts. Nine months, you sign up for nine months of going through something to have that baby. Most people would want to say, yes, I want a baby. Can I have it like 24 hours later? Where do I sign? Where do you drop it off? When you want to fall pregnant, your body begins to change. The shift that goes through your body, this feelings. And now all of a sudden you haven't even in your life ever had a tomato sap gedrink. It's unreasonable. It's terrible. You don't, it's like taking all gold tomato sauce and just throwing it down your throat and you're like, oh, love it. <laughs> Chanel fell pregnant with one of these three. And then she goes like, wakes up. That's how I know she's pregnant. You're like, I should tomato soup. Your body begins to crave stuff. You go through the, you swell up. Now I'm not just holding my wife, I'm holding my future bundle of joy <laughs> and back pains. And she, gone, she went on to some of those pills that you drink that the doctors prescribe. We were on holiday with her. We were not on holiday. We were on holiday with her while pregnant. It's a time of my life I'll never forget. It was terrible. Because her body goes through... We want the baby, but it takes nine months. God is taking us through that process. Now, at the, towards the end, you sleep less. Is that correct? You sleep less? I slept like a baby. <laughs> I heard you said you woke up. <clears throat> you begin to sleep less. God is training you that because that baby can't sleep eight hours when it comes out of that womb. The baby doesn't go like, oh, eat, slop, acht, eat. No, the baby goes like, slop, slop, bakker. like... Take it back to its cot, you feed it, it falls asleep, you get back in the bed, uh, slop, fuck it. Your wife turns into a zombie. It takes nine months. If the baby comes out at seven, it's too soon. The baby is there, but seven months is too soon. God has a promise for you, but seven months might just be too soon. Ten months might just be too long. Nine months is perfect. 
For a baby to come, it's nine months. What is God taking a time that you think should be now, but you're not ready? And you're refusing to change your mind because God is giving you time to adapt to what is coming, but you're refusing to, to, to get the lesson. God can't get the baby out of you because it's too soon. And you're not changing that when the baby comes, you're ready for it. What is God wanting to birth in your life that's going to take some time that you have to shift your mind in? Yes. That's what I want to say. The Israelites kept on complaining. They kept on complaining. Now we don't have food. God rains manna down. Now we don't have water. Moses brings water out of a rock. Now we can't take, they, they, God says he couldn't take them along the short route because the Philistines were there and they were not ready for war. There are some shortcuts you can't go on because you're not ready. If you were ready, it would have been faster. So he sends the spies into the country. They come back. The spy says, we can take it now. Half of them says, we can't take it. Why not? Because the spies can't believe God. Uh, they, the spies, 10 of them couldn't believe God. The people who heard the spies couldn't believe God. They believed the spies more than believed Moses. They spent 40 years in a desert place because they didn't shift their mind. Their flesh got stuck in a place because their mind's the problem. Where are you stuck because you refuse to change your mind? I want to submit to you, not my word, not my opinion, not my likes or dislikes. If I like you, if I don't like you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I think this is how church should be done and you think it should be done different, it doesn't matter. If you think you are the church and I think you're not the church, it doesn't matter. Know what matters, what God says. And if God doesn't say it and you believe it to be true, it doesn't make it true. And if he doesn't say it and you fight everything you have against it, God's not going to change his position. The only result you have is to ask yourself, where am I relative to God? Can you put a spotlight on this platform? I'll close with this example. I'm full of examples the last three days. Is there a spotlight that can just put one spotlight right here on this platform? Is it possible? They're trying to figure out which button. It's not that one. There's one. No, but can you make a sharp light? All our headlights are gone. No, those are all. It doesn't make a spotlight. Let me try something else. Give me my cell phone. Just leave it like this. Okay. Make it darker. Rico, just come here, please. I'm training you to hold this phone. Just stand here with this phone underneath like this. Turn off all the lights, please. No, darker. Alice. Da more darker. You're black. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to take about 20 seconds. If you want to hold her hand, now's the time. <laughs> this is God's word. This is an example of God's word. This is where most of us think we are relative to God's word. No, don't put on more lights. If you're afraid of the dark, maybe it's fine. We're always moving around about it. God's word is not going to shift. It's always going to be just there. Am I under it? Even if I begin to miss it like this, 
God's word is always going to be what it is. It's not going to change. It's going to shift. God's not moving. You're moving. God's not moving. His word is, has been written. That's why this word is called the Logos and the Rhema. It was true when it was written and it is alive for when it was written. At both times it's the same word. Its definitions don't change as the times change. It is merely here. Do I, do, am I shifting towards God's word? Or am I moving away from it? And if I move away from it, I'm allowing darkness. I can't even see your faces. How can I ask you for advice? You can switch the lights back on. Thank you, Rico. The darkness which was in the room just now, that's where most people outside of the kingdom of God is operating. And we call them experts. They can't even see their hands. I want to be under the light of the word of God. I want to be where he wants me to be.